Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. You've heard us say it before, the 2020 presidential election was met with record voter turnout. Several states across the country made it easier for Americans to cast their vote amid the deadly coronavirus pandemic. The entire system of elections in the United States is for the most part set around the whole construct of having all the foxes guard the hen house. Because if all the foxes are guarding the hen house, then they're not going to let some other fox go grab those eggs. And so understand there's a context to elections that in most cases, in most places, works very well because you've got strong partisans from both sides or multiple sides. Welcome to Dead Men Don't Vote. podcast where you, the American voter, have the opportunity to understand how elections really work and how you can help improve the process and restore confidence in American democracy. We will interview leading election experts, explore election controversies, and demystify election administration. From voter registration to ballot casting and counting, results reporting, and on through to certification and audits. We'll answer all your burning questions. Is vote by mail safe? How are foreign countries trying to interfere in our elections? And yes, do dead people actually vote? And we hope you will listen, like the future of our country depends on it. Sir, are you registered to vote? This podcast is a Royfield Brown production. Find others on iTunes. All right. Yeah, I know. Ladies and gentlemen, please remain standing for the singing of our national anthem. means Brexit. My administration has accomplished more than almost any administration in the history of our country. Hello and welcome to Mid-Atlantic, the show where we look at the news and the views from one side of the Atlantic from the perspective of the other. I'm Rayful Brown, who's in um, a sunny Bay Area in California. Today, I'm joined again by Emily Chantel Justice, who is the director of the Temetry Contemporary Ukraine Program at the Ukrainian Research Institute at Harvard University. And we're going to discuss part two of our discourse about how peace could be formed in Ukraine. In this section, we look at how the conflict will change the domestic and foreign policy of the US, the UK and other countries around the world. 
This is uh, Boris Johnson, the Prime Minister of the UK, uh, talking about, or at least asking the question, why did Vladimir Putin launch this invasion of Ukraine? And then the question which I want everyone to answer is how domestic politics in your own country will be changed uh, by this invasion. With every day that Ukraine's heroic resistance continues, it is clear that Putin has made a catastrophic mistake. And you have to ask yourself why he did it. Why did he decide to invade this totally innocent country? He didn't really believe that Ukraine was going to join NATO any time soon. He knew perfectly well there was no plan to put missiles on Ukrainian soil. He didn't really believe the semi-mystical guff he wrote about the origins of the, of the Russian people. I don't know whether you read it, Nostradamus meets Russian Wikipedia. I, I think that wasn't what it was about. I think, I, I think he was frightened of Ukraine for an entirely different reason. He was frightened of Ukraine because in Ukraine they have a free press. And in Ukraine they have free elections. And with, with every year that Ukraine progressed, not always easily, towards freedom and democracy and open markets, he feared the Ukrainian example and he feared the implicit reproach to himself. Because in Putin's Russia, you get jailed for 15 years just for calling an invasion an invasion. And if you stand against Putin in an election, you get poisoned or shot. Uh, one of the things which has helped uh, maybe change UK politics is our attitudes around money in politics. Before this invasion, um, Russian oligarchs who'd been putting money into the Conservative Party, uh, people were turning their nose up at that and asking why are they doing this while they're trying to get out of this so maybe british politics in terms of campaign finance will be a little bit cleaner and then also i think there's been a revulsion against the, the super rich ostentatious displays of power and the corruption which they've actually put into let's say just the property market just one example within the uk specifically london uh, London has a homeless crisis, which is nothing like any American city. I have, to, I, have to, I have to really do say that. But at the one end of the problem of somewhere like London is inflated property prices. Places like Mayfair and Belgravia were actually called uh, Moscowgrad because of the amount of Russians that were there and they're massively inflating the whole property market within London. So the councils just can't even build affordable homes fast enough. Uh, and so hence it's a homeless problem. So that's just one small thing, which might be for the positive that comes out of this terrible invasion. I want to ask everybody very quickly, try and be pithy and short with your answers. Uh, tell us the country where you reside and how you think your own domestic politics could well change going forward because of the uh, Russian invasion. Emily uh, Chanel Justice, over to you. Yeah, I think, um, so I'm based in the US and I think we need to look just a little bit back. You know, Donald Trump, when he was president, was really kind of shifting internally, becoming more isolationist. And, and I do think there was rather a fair amount of support in the US for kind of turning away from being such a such a major power that intervened in other other countries affairs in a lot of ways and then for the record you know I've been very critical of lots of US intervention in the past um, and I think 
that this has changed people's perceptions of what the U.S. can and should do. I'm not going to purport to explain why that is, um, but people have have largely been supportive of, of Ukraine and Ukrainians. They want to help every everyone that they can. There's a, a much greater support for military aid to Ukraine than I anticipated. Um, so I think it is shifting our calculus a little in terms of domestic attitudes toward U.S. intervention has has changed rather a lot in response to this. Our friend from from Finland, I gave a stab at trying to pronounce your name and I'm sure I butchered it. So why don't you tell us how exactly to pronounce your name? And you've given us somewhat of a uh, of an insight as to how Finland's, let's say, military posture is going to change. But are there any other maybe more subtle or domestic ways of which uh, Finnish politics or culture or its attitude to Europe could well be influenced by the Russian invasion? My name is Juho. It's just the J is a little bit different than in English, nothing more special than that. So, as I already said, the, I believe the biggest impact will be that Finland is very likely to either apply for membership in NATO or try to tighten its relationship to NATO in other ways. It's already in the Partnership for Peace program. And all this depends also on what Sweden will do, because it seems like Finland and Sweden would like to synchronize their activities in this field. And it all depends on what the politicians in Finland, Sweden and NATO countries think about these matters. Otherwise, I don't see any big changes in Finland. Finland has had a, let's say, attitude of having a strong defense that will continue just as before. Finland's relationship to European Union, that doesn't change much. Finland is happy that European Union has been more unified in these aspects. I believe that's from the Finland perspective, everything that I can say, country perspective. Of course, there will be other matters, but I guess this is enough. Thanks. Thank you for that. Ben Mendelssohn, I'm going to put you in the mind of the common man on the street in Ouagadougou. <laughs> okay. All right. So one of the common complaints uh, for people in emerging economies is that they get forgotten when it comes to geopolitical uh, matters. Uh, there are uh, a few conflicts in Europe, specific, uh, sorry, within Africa, specifically within Ethiopia, uh, which three months ago was just about registered on uh, the world's consciousness. And now that's completely gone. And also one of the things which... Uh, which was commented on, was reported on at the start of the, the conflict with the outpouring of refugees um, out of Ukraine were uh, refugees that were non-white and the way they were treated uh, whilst they were trying to exit Ukraine, that they were held back from leaving, uh, that they had to have much more documentation than the white Ukrainians. And then the Polish border guards were not sympathetic towards them as well. First off, tell us exactly how that played out within the emerging world. And then maybe tell us how you think the politics of Africa, and it's a terrible thing to say, Africa's 54 countries, I absolutely know, and or uh, let's say West Africa could well be changed or influenced by uh, the invasion of Ukraine. Yeah, um well, there's two things that, that where the invasion has, has affected uh, this part of the world. Um, one is food security. Um, these countries, and in Burkina Faso is the second poorest country in the world by GDP. 
And, and it depends on, um, you know, uh, regular access, particularly the wheat and, and uh, uh, regular uh, foodstuffs. And uh, the disruption of, of, uh, of, the, of wheat and, and other food sources can, is, it could possibly trigger famine here because there's already a lot of issues, uh, security issues here in Burkina Faso because of uh, um, Islamic uh, radical uh, jihadists up north that are disrupting the north of the country. And, and there are a lot of displaced people here. So the food security issue is, is, the, is the biggest concern. Um, the second concern uh, also has to do with security, but um, military security, because the Russians, uh, through the Wagner Group, um, have been uh, in, inserting themselves in, in all of the conflicts in Mali, in, in uh, uh, Niger, in Burkina Faso, um, there's sort of a, a disease that's happening. And, and uh, there was a coup here in Burkina Faso uh, almost two months ago. And uh, there's been uh, the, the new coup leaders who were, it was really a military mutiny, were starting to get friendly with the Russians and the Russians were reaching out and the diplomatic community has been very concerned. So with the Russians um, invading, the Ukra invading Ukraine, um, it's, it's caused a, uh, a distraction to their, um, their outreach to, to Africa. So in that sense, um, we're a bit relieved that the Russians aren't uh, actively causing trouble here. But so that's the one side. The second side is the food security. So uh, other than that, they, there's not a lot um, of uh, other, look, the dip diplomatic community here, which I'm involved with, we talk about this. This is the number one, you know, conversation in the, in the whole world. But here in Africa, in West Africa, they know about it. Uh, but um, there, there's not a lot of conversation because there are a lot of other things that people are concerned about. Uh, one last real quick thing that people probably don't know about. As you know, my, my wife's a senior uh, diplomat from Brazil. Brazil's very interesting. This is a, uh, for another topic another day. But you may not know that Brazil has the third largest Ukrainian diaspora community. They have close to 600,000 uh, Ukrainians that live, ethnic Ukrainians that live in Brazil. And, and it's, it's been very interesting how they've been handling um, their interests with the Ukrainians and, and, and with the Russians and with the fact that there's an election in, in a few months. Anyway, that's a little aside that we can talk on another day. Thank you, Ben Mendelssohn. Marcus, uh, you're, you're new and fresh to our stage. Uh, so it's just going to be one, one quick point to you, sir. I presume you're in Germany. I'm in the U.S. actually, but I know pretty well what's going on in Germany. I can give you a brief summary of what I think how Germany will be affected. Go for it, Marcus. So, I mean, obviously, they changed the spending for the military dramatically for German conditions two, three weeks ago. Secondly, the whole energy policy will be changed dramatically. Putin doesn't accept now euro anymore, which was pronounced today, which puts the Germans in a very dire situation. And the third thing is, and that's actually the most interesting part, in Germany there was this, the leftist part, the extreme, and the right extreme part. They were... <laughs> 
both on the same boat to idealize Putin. The leftist part was always bragging about, you know, do we need NATO, something from the past. They're very silent right now. And the AFD, which is the right populist party, which was very close mentally to, you know, creating that partnership with Russia, that Euro-Eurasian thing, they're very quiet too. So there was a, a poll, and I finish in a second, a few years ago where more Germans had trust in Putin and Xi than in Trump. It will be interesting to see if Trump comes back. Thank you for that, Marcus. Uh, Tyrion, obviously, you, you are actually in Germany. Uh, um, do you uh, completely endorse everything that Marcus has said? And, and maybe there's another aspect of German, uh, German domestic politics of which you think is going to be affected, either for good or for ill, post the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Thanks, Royfield. No, I, I agree with Marcus. I just uh, put in a couple more points there. I would say there's a, a wide consensus in 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 politics and the political parties for increasing military spending, for making sure that the uh, German armed forces are able to do their job well. I don't think that's a, a and and the uh, the Minister of Defense has said that it's that doesn't mean that uh, there's going to be a, a gigantic growth in the military. I think it's it's fair to say German military equipment is good and uh, the military is a good size. What needs to happen is that the, the, the equipment has to be delivered and has to work and, and then the military can do its job properly. And I think uh, the NATO partners will be happy with that. And I agree with Marcus also on the side of, of energy. I think the, the jump to, to the transition to renewable energies will be put into overdrive. That's, those are the two things I see coming. Thanks. Just, just a quick question about the, about the AFD, uh, alternative for Deutschland. And let's say uh, the, the extreme right wing all over Europe. Does this take wind out of their sails now? The fact that one of the regimes that tacitly they've actually looked to and one of the regimes which has given them succor you know, in terms of sowing social uh, disinformation, dissension, versus the Front National in in France or the AfD in Germany, are we actually going to see a weakening of extreme right wing politics now? I think that's a question that just doesn't that doesn't apply only to to Germany, uh, but uh, I think it's yet to be seen. Uh, you know, they were also the the party that was uh, backing the anti the anti vaxxer movement or was involved in the anti-vaxxer movement. Uh, unfortunately, uh, you know, these are the discussions that a lot of people are having these days is how, how, how to talk to people that, you know, don't believe in science and, you know, think everything's a, a conspiracy. And uh, I think uh, the people in that party uh, belong, are very much in that, in that camp. And uh, I think it's very difficult. And uh, as much as I can see in the States, uh, the, the Trumpers are uh, the same line of thought. So that's about as much as I can say about it. Royfeld, I can jump in now if you want to. Um, so this is Elena. I am a Ukrainian-American, and I am in many ways a, a product, kind of the, the, the end result of all of those um, movements of opening up of the former Soviet Union. It is due to this liberalization and the plugging in of Ukraine into the global economy that I was eventually able to come to the United States and uh, complete my 
graduate degrees and and here i am i am still in the united states um going to bed and waking up with ukraine waking up at night to check on the latest news in ukraine my parents are in ukraine a lot of my relatives are in ukraine many many friends i do follow news um relentlessly i think it's starting to get in my head i think i, I should try and moderate myself but um I'm very, very concerned about where we are and where we might be going. This, in a way, what we're seeing today, as far as uh, I can analyze it as a political scientist. And by the way, I've been so wrong so many times. Like, I'm one of those people who did not think a military uh, operation was going to happen. I did not believe in the war, and I was as shocked as as most of my friends and um others were when Russia actually did attack so you know i don't have a very good track record but where we are today is potentially this prolonged very bloody very vicious very visceral conflict which is destroying ukraine has displayed 10 million people an estimated 10 million people an estimated 3 million outside ukraine mostly in europe um an estimated 7 million people inside Ukraine, mostly in Western Europe, and um, and kind of no clear and, and potential for escalation, very serious potential for escalation. But the most concerning thing in my mind, and I, I was so shocked and disturbed by the war when it happened that out of uh, despair, I wrote an open letter to the world. I, we see two very, very opposite, different narratives. Uh, pursued by Ukraine and by Russia, and they do not intersect. And until we can find a way for them to intersect, and by Ukraine and by the West, uh, I'm, I'm lumping kind of both um, into the same bucket for the benefit of this argument. We, uh, both sides, Ukraine and Russia, are fighting what they perceive to be an existential conflict. And we can talk more in detail, but it is very difficult to get out of a ditch when uh, both sides are fighting for their survival, at least in their eyes, as they believe their survival to be. Uh, that was an excellent point for, for us to ponder, Elena, and uh, uh, thank you for your contribution today. Piotr Curzon, I'm going to put you as representing Britain. How is British politics, uh, domestic or maybe foreign policy, going to be changed by the invasion of Ukraine? Bah. Oh, you have to ruin the surprise, everyone. All your listeners want to know I'm Russian in English. Um, well, Britain alone, um, it saved Boris Johnson's ass. Let's put it that way for a start. So let's cast our minds back to earlier 2022. We've had quite a lot happen this year. A Burkina Faso coup, um, a, uh, a, a, a civil unrest suppression in um, Kazakhstan and the potential for the ousting of the British Prime Minister Boris Johnson because of his lies and um, BS around um, uh, around the COVID crisis and holding all the party party gate, as it was known. Um, sadly, that has now become, well, secondary in the eyes of the British electorate, much like it has in the eyes of the French electorate um, vis-a-vis Macron. Um, so firstly, I think Boris is now somehow going to going to survive. Much to my um, frustration and disappointment, um, I would have loved to have seen an opportunity for us to hold another election and have someone who was um, capable and uh, and uh, actually, um, well, doesn't say things like uh, the Ukrainian people should uh, or make comparisons between the Ukrainian war and what 
the British dealt with in Brexit. Um, over a longer term, firstly, we still have a big problem with London grad and the Conservative Party remain one of the biggest parties to be, uh, you know, receiving large donorships from Russian-backed money. Um, Roman Abramovich has left the country. Many oligarchs are now, you know, trying to sell their property or at least remove their association with it. Um, so we're going to see, I think, a dilution of London grad for sure. But it's not the end because it shows you the um, the, the cronyism uh, or minor corruption, whatever you want to call it, within the British government um, and just the British sort of political structure. So I think there's going to be efforts by non incumbent members like the Labour Party, the Liberals, uh, Liberal Democrats, that is, the Greens, to, to you know, undertake an investigation, hold a tribunal, whatever it is, committee, to try and, you know, remove some kind of funding. You know, David Cameron, uh, George Osborne, there's been a lot of recent cronyism going on uh, in the upper echelons of, of the UK government. In terms of foreign policy for the British, well, they have this trilateral agreement that I mentioned earlier with the Ukrainians and the Polish. The Polish and the Ukrainian, uh, the British, ironically, have found a sort of rather unusual common ground over their frustration with the European Union. That's why the British sent those special forces to support the Ukrainian border during the Belarusian-Polish migrant crisis of September 2021. Um, uh, the British have always been very hawkish when it comes to the Russians, more than the French or the Italians, for example. Uh, and this has obviously just solidified the, um, I wouldn't say Russophobia, but a uh, certain strong resentment uh, that the British now have to the Russians. Um, and Britain continues to have a a very strong role to play in, in foreign policy, specifically in security and defence. Uh, and for a while, I think it has been struggling to find its relevancy in the post-Brexit world. For um, uh, And I think that this these events in Russia or, or with Ukraine uh, could be that opportunity for Britain to take a leading role in sort of the provision of intelligence through the Five Eyes, the 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 leadership of maybe some kind of independent security pact, um, and also to see how they can maybe act as a, as a good negotiating team on the UN. They've been very active there, holding quite a lot of sessions or pushing for quite a lot of sessions there. So this may be the opportunity for Boris and the Conservative Party's global Britain to be realised. I highly doubt it, but it's certainly going to uh, be an opportunity for the British. But it depends whether they choose to, to, to grab it or let it slip through their fingers. Thank you for that, Piotr. Now, uh, Greg, Sattel and Emily, um, I'm going to come to you last. I know, Emily, I've, you, have, you have actually spoken um, a, a little on this, but I'm going to ask you a specific question. I'm going to cue you up, but I'm going to come to Dr. Dan and Aaron Berger next. But, it, but here's the question. So, Emily, obviously, it is your job to to study Ukraine. And the whole premise of this show was really to look at two uh, peace agreement scenarios. And you and Piotr done an excellent job of just telling me just to stop uh, with my uh, two-month scenario. That was literally, there was no point to me even bringing the second scenario. So what I'm going to do is come to you to, to round off the show and ask you how Ukrainian politics will be uh, changed by this conflict, and uh, the and the scenario is that that the war comes to an end. There is an agreement in place, one which Ukraine is broadly happy with. 
not getting into the specifics because we did that much earlier on in, in the show. And you and Piotr did a very good job of pushing back and my relative bits of horse trading. So that's what I would like you uh, basically to, to end the show. And then Greg Sattel, I know you know uh, Russian politics and you spent time in Moscow. If you could talk about how Russian politics going forward post this conflict will change, could change uh, with an agreement on the ground which the Ukrainians are happy with. No specifics because otherwise we'll be here uh, for another two hours arguing about Crimea and Luhansk and Donetsk and NATO guarantees. I'll just leave it as, as broad as that, Greg. So I'm going to come. Uh, so after I've done uh, Dr. Dan and Aaron Berger, I'll come to you, Greg, uh, you to say possibly how Russian politics could change. And then Emily, uh, you can round off the show. Aaron Berger, I know you are sat in, in the United States of America. How will this uh, conflict impact on American domestic politics or maybe American foreign policy post the conflict? Well, uh, the domestic uh, uh, one is a is a pretty easy answer. Sadly, um, we'd we'd be hard pressed to find a uh, a domestic U.S. election that was uh, uh, significantly impacted by some kind of foreign policy uh, paradigm. Um, we could argue that possibly uh, uh, Carter's last election was uh, possibly when that happened last, but other than that. Foreign policy has been uh, decidedly at the lower end of um, America's mind when it comes to uh, voting for anyone, whether it's uh, uh, Parliament, Congress, or uh, um, or the presidency. I mean, mark my words right now. You know, we're in a, a midterm election year right now. You know, that'll be uh, around to November, right? So, Aaron, can... I'm going to quickly jump in. Doesn't this basically write off Trump from running in 2024. Let's say if, if he goes through a whole primary process, big if, all his opponents have to do is just replay all of those tapes of him saying how wonderful Putin was. Have, isn't this actually just write off Trump as coming back and having a second term? <laughs> you think so. But uh, sadly, Royfeld, uh <laughs> Uh, uh, there are a lot of people, uh, so there's, so there's two issues with that. Um, number one, uh, there are, uh, a, a lot of the people that are staunchly for Trump are staunchly for Trump, right? And, uh, there's a weird kind of perverted way they go about it. I mean, even when, uh, uh Trump turned around and decided to be pro-vaccine, um, and, uh, he tried to encourage, uh, his, uh, uh followers, um, uh, uh, during multiple uh, uh, in-person um, staged uh, uh, events to go and get vaccinated. And he was booed soundly multiple times. Um, but they still like him, right? The thing is that a lot of those folks are going to stay with Trump regardless. He was talking about grabbing women by the pussy and still people voted for him. So uh, uh, disgusting decorum, uh, I think, uh, notwithstanding, I think, for a lot of people. Uh, the other sad thing that we're seeing right now is that the Republicans uh, actually have a little bit of a, a of a split on this issue. There are some uh, Republicans who believe that uh, uh, Russia is uh, justified uh, in its aggression. Uh, some of them have, not all of them, but some of them. Uh, interestingly, a number of them who also happen to think this way are also Trump apologists. 
like Marjorie Taylor Greene, for example, believe that uh, um, uh, Ukraine is in the wrong and, uh, you know, uh, of course they would get invaded because they deserve it or some bullshit like that. But at the end of the day, many people in the Republican Party still would vote for Trump if he were the if he were on there. Uh, uh, I don't think that the Republicans are going to go through a primary process because I believe if they did and if Trump lost, Trump would actually uh, decide to make his own party, something he's actually had to be talked out of before. Because at the end of the day, you know, Trump may be unpredictable, but we can at least understand that he would try to you know, go for himself above all things. I don't think this changes the calculus for Trump's possibility to run. I, I see it as being much harder for him to win, not just with this, but also a number of other things that will be turning off uh, independence and also changing the electoral landscape a bit. I, domestic policy, unsure that'll change much as a result of this. Foreign policy-wise, uh, I think that this has actually been a really amazing opportunity for the U.S. to kind of come back onto the world stage. Uh, Dr. Dan, ex-military man, you serve with distinction in the U.S. armed forces. Will we see, or how will we see uh, American might as displayed around the world change uh, by this Russian invasion? One of the uh, charges made by the last president, President Trump, was that NATO, NATO members weren't pulling their weight. They weren't spending 2% of their GDP and above on their military defense. And uh, this was America kind of do, doing all the heavy lifting. One of the things which was symbolized by the retreat from Kabul is some level of a rationality of America's military commitments throughout the world. It seems to be there's two competing forces here. Now everybody's remembered the reason for NATO to exist, uh, but still... I would say the American public is still slightly tired and a little bit weary of all these foreign kind of entanglements. So, so where do you see uh, American military concerns kind of going forward, considering there is the political uh, will of now to do something, but to be prudent with using uh, uh, American might and, or, and then also through NATO, but also just the fact that, you know what, America m might need to put American needs first. Are the two in conflict or are they one and the same? Dr. Dan, very long rambling question. Uh, it's okay. I will take it uh, from the entanglements part. Um, thank you. Good evening. Uh, we are making strange bedfellows, but reuniting uh, nonetheless. Um, I think there, there are two different things, uh, but related off the same uh, tree. Uh, what do I mean? It, it puts us to, to what Aaron was leading to. It puts America back on the stage as a world superpower. It asserts the power but it also shows that the power can be wielded in a way that um, does not have to actually have the kinetic impact directly um, and without directly engaging uh, soldiers on the soil of the land or occupying the land. There's a big sensitivity to that given all the historical context, which you've alluded to, and I'm sure people have probably mentioned in the room. But that nonetheless... Um, Embracing the diplomacy and the tact, the alacrity and skill of um, diplomacy on the public stage is something we needed to get back, to get our mojo back, to get that brand back. Um, we still have a lot of stuff to do, a lot of work to do on the domestic front, 
from all the other issues from from race to even just uh, economics. So that is not uh, forgotten. Uh, and that literally eats at the core of uh, the um, reticence of people to actually say, yes, we should go to war and go do this and, and just let's go fight, 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 fight and solve everybody else's problem. We all have. And the story hasn't been fully told yet. We don't know what's going to happen if this ends up in a kinetic um, issue. I hope it does not. But that notwithstanding, the bottom line is, uh, yes, America's back on stage. America's got its mojo back on the public scene. Um, what it means on the um, uh, on the uh, on the at home front, um, we'll we'll soon find out. But I think we're moving in the right direction, and it does take leadership. Thank you. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare insurance plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at UH1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at Burrow.com slash ACAST. That's Burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Thank you for that, Dr. Dan. Uh, David Volotsko, uh, you were, a couple of weeks ago, you were in southeastern Poland. You're on the Ukrainian border uh, reporting. Uh, on, on the refugee crisis. The estimates are that there's best part of three and a half million uh, refugees have actually left Ukraine and internally in Ukraine there are 10 million displaced people. I remember when we spoke before we had you on the podcast, you said 50% of those people who were refugees didn't see themselves ever going back to Ukraine. So if that is the case, how do you see a country like Poland uh, coping post the conflict with so many displaced people? Uh, yeah, that's a good question. Thank you. It's also a difficult question. Uh, it's not going to be easy, for one thing. I mean, the logistically speaking, the Polish government is already, to a degree, many would say, failing to handle the refugee crisis. And one of the solutions they've um, landed upon is simply issuing PESEL numbers, which are the numbers that people need in order to register for a job or whatever. It's sort of, if you have that number, you you function as a regular Polish citizen. So it's free right to work, no paperwork needed upon entry, which is fairly um, sort of revolutionary approach to the issue, but there's simply too many people. I mean, Poland is taking 60% of the 3.6 million so far. Uh, and other countries are even taking more as a proportion of their population. Moldova, I believe, is rapidly approaching 15% of its entire population, refugees from Ukraine. So the logistical aid so far, just to maintain this, has not, Poland has, I think, failed, in my opinion. 
Uh, I've spoken to a lot of uh, the aid coordinators in Poland and hosts, individual hosts, as we as many of us may have already heard, people just volunteering, just driving to the border and picking people up of their own volition simply because they feel, you know, it's their their altruistic or Christian duty or whatever have you. But when I ask them, how has it been receiving aid? Because this is obviously a very expensive operation for you personally. You have these people in your home. You're you're feeding them. You're clothing them. You're sheltering them. Uh, you know, how, what kind of aid are you getting from the government or from aid organizations? Some people laughed in my face. <laughs> Others kind of smirked. But not one of them told me that they were receiving any aid, really. There's definitely a breakdown logistically in so far already. And it's just on a scale that nobody's ever seen. So it does concern me that Poland, for instance, would be able to handle such a large population. Now, there is some, they do sort of have some experience. I mean, after 2014, there's already Ukrainians have been there for a while now. Uh, many people might forget, but this is, this is not the first wave, of course. So, and uh, linguistically, Polish, especially Western Ukrainians, already have some level of Polish linguistic ability. Uh, and learning it is not that hard if you're coming from Ukrainian to Polish despite Polish being a notoriously difficult language to learn. So there are some aspects where I see it, it would be easier for Ukrainians to assimilate than, for instance, other refugee groups we've seen in the past. But at this scale, it kind of, I mean, it's just so hard to say what the result could be at this scale. And already there's there are the beginnings of uh, far-right opposition, and they haven't yet gotten any traction yet there was recently a press conference by one of the more far-right groups and they they were basically looking to capitalize off any any sort of anti-immigrant sentiment out there absolutely nobody showed up to the press conference and they they took that as they they claimed that this was a form of censorship but that just shows that no that the the mood is not there yet although i did speak to one one person polish friend of mine and he said uh give it a couple weeks it could just take something as simple as a few reports of Ukrainians breaking the law. And that could be enough to not flip everything completely, but at least shift it from what seems now to be virtually 0% opposition to, you know, up to 10, up to 20, who knows? So in terms of long-term sustainability, I just, I just honestly, um, I don't know if Poland, uh, is is capable of it i spoke to an expert uh, about about this exactly and he said there's just there's just no way we max out at about in terms of our ability to sustain refugees we max out at about he put it the number at eight hundred thousand to maybe maybe one million well poland is already at, at two million so it's just not possible it just doesn't seem to be sustainable so i think uh, in the short run we're probably going to start seeing some of that opposition some of that anti-immigration sentiment or complaints about, you know, are the immigrants being treated better than native Poles? I've already seen a little bit of that, but not much. So I think I, I'm concerned that it's going to lead to more. Um, I don't know how much of this goodwill is going to, is going to last, how much longer it can last. And the government needs to swoop in and, and help, or it will start to turn the other way. And frankly, I don't think the government can deal with this many people. So if the war keeps going on as it is, it's just going to it's it's going to it's just going to be a problem that I don't think Poland is is equipped to solve. I don't know if that completely answers the question, but 
It, it absolutely does, uh, David, and you've given us a, a real insight into the some of the com- complexities there. Um, let, let's hope that uh, countries like my own, uh, the United Kingdom, actually pull their own fair wage when it comes to taking um, uh, refugees. Um, a week and a half ago, they uh, processed only 200 visa applications whilst um, 100,000 uh, British people said they want to take in Ukrainian refugees. So let, let's just hope that the UK and, and other countries which aren't exactly on the front line actually do their fair share and give resources and money to, to Poland uh, to aid with its sheltering of uh, some 2 million uh, displaced people. Uh, Greg Sattel, I'm uh, going to come to you and then we're going to end up with, with Emily. Uh, Greg, uh, I know you've spent time in Moscow. You've done a lot, you've done a lot of dealings with with, uh, with Russian politicians and businessmen. So the scenario is the war comes to an end on grounds which are favourable in terms of the agreement to uh, the Ukrainians in the not too dim and distant future. So we're talking about two months hence or so. How will that inform, how will that change, how will that colour Russian politics? Well, first of all, and sorry for Emily for, for missing uh, your earlier uh session because uh, I had a, a conflict. There's a, a regular Wednesday room I do. But I, I mean, first of all, I have to point out that I am of the view there can be no peace with, with Vladimir Putin in office because the only favorable sa- settlement in, in my mind that Ukrainians will accept is that there, there be some sort of credible assertion that Ukraine won't be back here again in six months or five years or 10 years. And I just, I just don't see how that, that could be credible with, with Putin still in, in office. And the, the Ukrainians I know, um, pretty much all of them, and some of the nicest and kindest people uh, I know, uh, just want to see dead Russians right now. And, and that's where they're at. So... Uh, I, I can, uh, what, what I would think would be most likely is some sort of Khrushchev, uh, 1964 scenario where, where some sort of network of, um, certainly somebody with a military background, somebody with a technocrat background and somebody, uh, from, the oligarchic world. I think you would need all, and not even just somebody, but 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 I think you would need all three of those elements. Uh, not making any predictions, but just to give an example, you know, to give some examples. Uh, about a month before the invasions, uh, a very cre- uh, conservative uh, Russian general named Ivashov. Published an essay in an influential military journal, uh, saying that Putin should resign. He uh, that that uh, that war in Ukraine would be considered a criminal act, that it wouldn't be easy, that the Russians would get bogged down. Pretty much said everything that 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 had happened has happened would happen. Uh, I think the news about uh, Anatoly Chubias who was a technocrat from the Yeltsin years, is generally respected in the West. 
and uh, politically savvy enough uh, to still be part of the, of the regime, you know, as of, of last week. And then, of course, uh, someone like Roman Abramovich, who apparently Zelensky requested that he not be sanctioned because he was being helpful. So I think some sort of coalition of sorts that has enough credibility with the Russian people that they're not just selling you know, Russia out to the West, but at the same time have some ability to build bridges and, 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 and bring Russia back somehow into the community of nations. So, uh, I mean, the honest answer is I don't know, but if uh, I would imagine that, that some sort of solution would, would have some of those elements at least. 1964, the, the palace coup your way that which Russia can, um, a new Russian regime can come to power and, and actually deal with the post-Russian uh, invasion of Ukraine? Yeah, I, I just think, you know, right now, Putin's a liability for everybody. And, and not only that, he looks stupid, weak and incompetent. So, you know, that's not a good place to be in Russian politics. Thank you, Greg Sattel. Emily, Janelle, Justice, it's only right and proper, considering that you've been our guest of honour, that you have uh, the honour of being the last person to, to speak on this matter. But let me cue this up for you. So, again, the war is, the kinetic war is over in two or three months' time. I know the, the finance minister of Ukraine just yesterday said that economic output is down by 30%. There are 10 million displaced Ukrainians within Ukraine. There's the best part of 3.5 million and upwards Ukrainians have, have left Ukraine since the conflict started. Towns like Mariupol uh, are 80% devastated. There's a massive reconstruction job to do. Uh, what does Ukrainian politics look like with an agreement that they are broadly positive about? What is the first thing that Zelensky needs to do? How does the world react to Ukraine? How should it react to Ukraine? And tell us about domestic politics as well. Well, yeah, I mean, um, certainly this is a, a, a optimistic scenario. So I, I, I think it's certainly what we can hope for. I mean, honestly, Zelensky has the possibility of being the first two-term president in independent Ukraine after this. Um, I think, you know, not, I saw a poll that was from today from a rating group in Ukraine that says something to the effect of 90% of Ukrainians think Russia needs to pay for the costs of rebuilding Ukraine. So I think that things like getting, you know, finding ways to hold Russia accountable, whether that's Putin um, or the people who enabled him because he's out of the picture for other reasons, um, you know, that that's certainly going to be a policy priority in this post-war context. Um, you know, rebuilding Ukraine's economic capacity because, I mean, before this, you know, Russia was still a very important economic partner for Ukraine, and that is absolutely not going to be the case after this. Um, and so integrating Ukraine into whatever existing international structures exist. I mean, Pyotr said some interesting things about 
um, the future of the EU and NATO. I, I mean, I think those things are part of the discussion. And I think Ukraine should actually be at the forefront of some of those discussions. Um, and so I think, you know, economic development, um, there's already been calls for the cancellation of Ukraine's foreign debt in order to help Ukraine rebuild. Um, so I think certainly... Ukraine is going to be in a better bargaining position vis-a-vis the rest of the world um, once they win this war. Um, I, you know, domestically, I think there's going to there's cause for I don't want to say concern yet before anything happens, but we will have to sort of look at the makeup of the politics of the parties that come to power. There is going to be a skew to the right. I think that's that's certainly very likely, um, and that's you know to some extent. Um, because any pro-Russian political party is not going to do well. Um, even peripherally pro-Russian parties are not going to succeed in Ukrainian politics after this. So, so there is going to be a kind of overrepresentation, I think, of pro-Ukrainian and potentially radically nationalist positions. Um, the other thing we honestly have to think about is like infrastructural rebuilding. We have to think about fixing the roads, getting people housed again. I mean, we're not, you know, half the, probably over half the people who are displaced are not just displaced, they are homeless. Um, and, and so the rebuilding that has to happen in Ukraine is really something um, that's not, it's not a little bit, it's going to be a lot. So I, I think Ukraine's post-war priorities are going to be a combination of that kind of rebuilding focus, but also the justice focus. Russia is going to be have to brought, going to have to be brought to justice for the crimes that they've committed here. Um, I've heard many people say that what is happening in Mar- Mariupol is, is, is a genocide and somebody's going to have to be held accountable and many people are going to be have to held accountable. So I think these rebuilding and, and these, these, um, accountability things go hand in hand. And those are going to be domestic policy in Ukraine uh, when this is over. So so um, I, I would say those are going to be the priorities. I hope that Zelensky is there to take Ukraine into that future. Amen to that. And thank you again, Emily Chantel Justice. We thank you for coming on to Mid-Atlantic and being our point person who could give us your expertise and shine a light on the internal workings of Ukrainian uh, politics and also giving us some kind of a steer as to what might be acceptable to Zelensky and the Ukrainian government in terms of any kind of peace agreement when that is signed. I was so pushed back with with my uh, first scenario that I didn't even bother with the second. But And that's the reason why it's really great to have uh, people really informed who can... Um, pull apart even just the scenarios of which you painted so we never even got to scenario two we only dealt with scenario one so i'd like to thank emily chantel justice piotr curzon eleanor farah juhu lato from from finland for coming in greg Sattel, who's a good friend of the podcast dr dan he, he's also a good friend of the podcast aaron berg and david velotsko uh, for being a part of a, a bumper episode of mid-atlantic don't forget um if you are listening to the podcast what you can do is go to clubhouse download the app then you can be part of the live recording of the podcast it, one of the things which I, I really do like is the fact that people can come up and actually ask questions dare i say it uh, their questions are almost always better than mine so you dear listener you don't have to just passively listen to the podcast please go on to an on to an app uh, carrier of your choice download the clubhouse app and then uh, you can be part of the live recording of the show you can send me an email it's royfield at gmail.com it's always great when i do get email and, and email and feedback um if you like the show uh, tell me if you don't like it tell me even more and 
let me know how I can change things and maybe what other topics we should be talking about. We will go back to more traditional fare. We're going to speak about the new Supreme Justice. We're going to take a deep dive in, into that and, and, and also talk about the process and how Supreme Justices are now politicised in the United States in a way that they weren't, let's say, 50, 60 years ago or so. We we will come back to Ukraine. We will come back to the, the emergency, the egregious invasion of Ukraine by Russia. Don't forget people, left of centre politics is right thinking politics. We don't demonise and alienate our right-leaning brothers and sisters. We just try and win them over with the strength of our arguments the common space the commons is exactly the glue that holds all democracies together we should be able to disagree with each other but still civilly talk and 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 commune and actually build a future uh with our citizens that do not necessarily agree with us because we trust each other it's the glue of any democracy and that's what this podcast fervently believes it's what we're all about uh take care look after yourselves don't forget download the podcast if you're in the audience and you've been here for crumbs the best part of two hours give everybody on stage a follow especially emily uh chanel justice she's been a total star she's been utterly amazing uh, and if you um, when you've done that join the mid-atlantic club so you'll be alerted whenever we go live with these rooms, these deep dives, these great conversations with, with people about geopolitics, but also the internal politics of the US and the UK. Take care. Look after yourselves. Bye-bye. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.